official, I'm famous. I'm famous. It's been a long time coming, too long if you ask me. Uh, but I am officially famous. Why do I say that? Well, Dr. Leighton Flowers responded to my video. The Dr. Leighton Flowers responded to my video. What does that mean? Think of all the people Dr. Leighton Flowers has responded to. James White, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, John Calvin. So that is now the fraternity that I belong to. When you think of John Calvin, think of Colin Brooks. So I promise to remember the little guy, even though I'm on top. In all seriousness, uh, I say that as a joke and not a joke to mock Dr. Flowers. He he actually does have a, a very large um, platform, um, but I'm not saying that to mock him. I'm saying that to joke around about myself. But it is true. Dr. Leighton Flowers, contrary to what I said in my actual video responding to him and Andy Stanley, he actually listened to at least one of my videos and responded to it. I was both shocked and also honored. Uh, but I decided, you know, I can't, I have to try to ride these coattails to internet stardom uh, as long as I can. And so I can't just leave the conversation there. I have to respond. So uh, now I, I know not to say that Dr. Flowers definitely will not get to this. He might. I don't imagine he's going to want to go through a back and forth with me. Um, but just in case, I decided let's make a response video. So that's what this is. Not long ago, I made a three-part series responding to an interview that Dr. Flowers had with Andy Stanley. And he took a clip from one of those and he made a about an hour and a half video response. And so this is my response to his response. Before I begin... I have to say that I was really uh, not surprised, but I was nonetheless uh, impressed with um, the way Dr. Flowers responded to me. He was gracious and patient and charitable, uh, but at the same time, he wasn't soft or weak or, you know, just acting like none of this matters. He was still passionate. He was still upfront and firm and, you know, standing on his convictions but at the same time, he was gracious and charitable. And he's always like that. And uh, so again, like I said, no surprise there. But to be on the receiving end of it, I finally, I, I got to experience just how, um, you know, that, 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 how, that goes such a long way. And it's so appreciated. So I hope to respond in kind. I hope to be just as gracious and charitable, yet firm and convictional as he was. So I just wanted to thank him. If he does watch this, I just wanted to thank you, Dr. Flowers, for giving my video the time of day, for thinking through it and for challenging me. It was very challenging and it was um, thoughtful and helpful. And so you sharpened me. And so I hope that I can sharpen you or if your Dr. Flowers doesn't see this, just anyone else who might be watching this, hopefully I can sharpen you. So what I decided to do was to break up the response into segments. And the reason I decided to do this, because I noticed as I was listening to Dr. Flowers' response of me, a lot of the stuff he, he would, he would kind of make a criticism. And then later on, he'd come back to that same criticism. And then later on, he'd come into one of the criticisms he said in between there. So I noticed basically as, as the time of my video went, he was returning to a lot of these same criticisms. And so I decided just to kind of clump these together. My fear, however, and how I've done this, because this isn't typical for me. 
I, if I respond to a video, I usually do it the way Dr. Flowers does, which is just play the video, stop, pause, stop, pause. But I think that this will be more advantageous and more edifying. But the fear is that people are just going to immediately jump to you. You're ripping that out of context. It's selective editing or you're, you're pulling pieces. And uh, I, I would challenge people. Number one, you can do that with stop and pause. As a matter of fact, some of the things I'm going to claim about Leighton Flowers, I don't think he does it intentionally, but I think Dr. Flowers does misunderstand me with that method a lot of times. He he hears the argument, but he forgets the context that it's in, and uh, I'll, I'll get to more on that in a minute. So I, I don't think that doing it the way I'm doing it necessarily has less of a potential or more of a potential, I mean, to take someone out of context than even just playing their video. The video, the video is online. So if, if you're watching this and you think that I've carefully edited things and I've selected things and pulled them out of context and then, then comment in the video, right? Tell me how, tell me where I don't believe I'm doing that. I believe I'm representing him fairly. And, um, I don't think that by not responding to the video second by second that I'm necessarily taking him out of context. So if you think I have challenged me, feel free to go through the video and and test my claims, test how I pulled the clips out. But overall, I don't think that what I've done is unfair. It's not going to be uh, second by second, if you will. The first criticism that I want to look at is Dr. Flowers accused me of committing the U2 fallacy on more than one occasion. And I think that you could even argue if, if I wanted to summarize his entire response to me, I would almost, not quite, but I would almost summarize it as he thinks that I've committed the U2 fallacy. Or what is formally known as the Tukwokwe fallacy. And here's why. I this, just to give you a little preview, he's about to get into what we would call the U2 fallacy. Um, it's, it's ultimately, you have the same problem because you believe in omniscient creature. Because God did not foresee and permit it. God sovereignly and unchangeably brought it to pass. Defend that, Colin. Instead of trying to impose your philosophical finite understanding of what you think we have to affirm as people who affirm omniscience, why not just answer the question from your perspective? Because notice when the question was posed or the argument was posed about why in the world would they uh, denounce uh, that which they believe God sovereignly and unchangeably brought to pass for his own good purposes, notice he hasn't given an answer to that. He's, he, all he has done is appealed to the U2 fallacy. Well, you people have the same problem because you believe in omniscience. Right. I, I commit the U2 fallacy, and how does he summarize my argument? He made an objection against Calvinism. My response was, you too, right? You have the same problem. Tu quoque, you too. So I want us to just do a very, very shallow and basic dive into the world of logical fallacies. We're all going to kind of become logicians for a minute. And I want to make a defense as to why I do not think that I actually committed the U2 fallacy. First, uh, let me begin by saying this. I, I think that I had a little bit of a different understanding than he, than Dr. Flowers has of the U2 fallacy. And let me explain that. Um, I actually own, I don't have it with me, but I've, I've, I've read through a, a book on Christian and logic, Christian, it was like a Christian logic book. And that had a, a, that presented the Tukwokwe fallacy in an interesting light that I think is actually more accurate than what Dr. Flowers has present, has done with it. And that is, is it presented the 
U2 fallacy as being a subcategory of a subcategory of a larger fallacy, which that's not unheard of. That's that's what you do in in the school of logic, right? You have these broad groups of logical fallacies and then different forms of that. So you, everyone subcategorizes the logical fallacies. But this one was three categories deep. The first category was what we call irrelevant information. That's a fallacy of irrelevant information. And you too... The U2 fallacy certainly falls into that. That's what it's guilty of. It's guilty of bringing up irrelevant information. But the second subcategory, and this is important that it fell under, was the category of ad hominem. And I noticed that there were even a lot of online definitions that categorized the U2 fallacy as a form of ad hominem. What's ad hom? That's also a Latin phrase. And an ad hominem attack is what usually people say an ad hominem fallacy is when you attack a person rather than the argument it's when you attack their character rather than the actual logic rather than the argument so this is interesting so how is a u2 fallacy a form of ad hominem attack well that's because in most cases the u2 fallacy is specifically leaning on someone's hypocritical lifestyle not inconsistent logic. So typically, how, as, as I've always understood the U2 fallacy, is it's not doing what I was doing, which is saying he has a double standard, right? He has a logical double standard. Calvinists can't do this, but we can do this. Calvinists can't believe this, but we can believe it. It's a problem for you to believe that, but it's not a problem for us to believe it. That's a logical inconsistency, a double standard. The U2 fallacy is not dealing with logical inconsistencies it's dealing with behavioral inconsistencies so here's like the greatest example the 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 prime classic example of a u2 fallacy if someone let's say i started i started smoking and someone i knew who happened to be a lifelong chain smoker i mean this person has been smoking nonstop for a long time and this person sees me smoking on the corner you know behind my house or something one day and they come up to me and they say you know you shouldn't be smoking it's really bad for you what would I most likely be tempted to say? But you smoke too, right? You too. You are a chain smoker. So that's irrelevant information, actually. If anything, you could argue the fact that they're a chain smoker gives them more credibility. Because I can say, trust me, I've had a ton of health issues, right? But so that's the U2 fallacy. It's appealing to their inconsistent lifestyle. And the reason it's a fallacy is because whether this person is consistent with their logic is not a claim that the logic itself is false. So a chain smoker can tell me, uh, hey, smoking is bad for you. And the fact that they're a chain smoker is irrelevant to whether the claim they made is true. Is smoking objectively bad for me or not? Whether they're a smoker has nothing to do with that. In my mind, the U2 fallacy is, is appealing to someone's inconsistent lifestyle as getting me off the hook or taking the logic and throwing it away, diverting from the logic. And that's obviously not what I did in the video, right? I didn't appeal at all to uh, Dr. Flowers' inconsistent life or Andy Stanley's inconsistent lifestyle. I didn't point out that they were living inconsistent with their claims. I actually went after the consistency of the logic. And is the logic being equally applied to both places? And so that's one of the reasons why I do not believe that I committed the U2 fallacy. 
However, I think it does deserve more of a response than that because I did a brief research and I found out that there are people out there who agree with Dr. Flowers that the U2 fallacy can be applied not just to lifestyles, but even to um, to logic and, and to uh, the actual argument. And, and I, I have room to agree there. It is possible that even if someone is logically inconsistent, depending on the context of the argument, that could be irrelevant information and it would still make it the the U2 fallacy. It is illogical to say that because you have a inconsistent theology, therefore my theology is true or my theology is inconsistent is consistent, right? I'll I'll admit that is that is a logical fallacy. That is the U2 fallacy. Um Leighton Flowers could be wrong about a lot of things. That doesn't prove that I'm right. Right. If if I have a problem in my theology, the fact that someone else has a similar problem doesn't make my problem go away. So I think Leighton Flowers is absolutely right about that. Dr. Flowers, forgive me, is right about that. But that's not the form of my argument. I don't believe that was the form of my argument. I was not saying Calvinists do not have a problem because non-Calvinists can't answer the same question. That's not what I was saying. If that is what I was saying, then I would 100% agree with Dr. Flowers that I was committing the U2 fallacy. But that's not actually what I was saying. For example, I think that Dr. Flowers, what he did was he just, the second he heard me try to turn the tables on them, the second he heard me say U2, he assumed this has to be the U2 fallacy. But what I want us to see in this segment is that there are a lot of times when you can turn someone's logic against them, but not be committing the U2 fallacy. Imagine that, uh, you know, my, my wife and I, imagine we own one car and it's, uh, I, I own a Nissan. And let's say that um, it's, it's the middle of the winter and it's 20 degrees below zero. And she realizes I need something from the store. So she braves the cold, she gets in the car, she drives to the store, she comes back and, and then we have dinner. Now let's say the next day, it's the same temperature. It's 20 degrees outside. And I realize um, I forgot something at the office. So I brave the cold. I go out and I try to start the car and it won't turn on. And I keep trying, trying, it won't turn on. So I call her myself and I say, hey, did something happen in the car yesterday? Um, do you know why it won't turn on? And let's say she said this. Well, it's a Nissan and it's a known fact that Nissan's, Nissan engines cannot start when it's 20 degrees below. I know it's not true. And how do I know it? Because she drove the same car in the same degree and it worked for her. So if she gets on the phone and says, oh, it's a known fact that Nissan's cannot, the engines can't turn on when it's that cold. I could say, but you drove it yesterday and it was this cold. Now, that is not the U2 fallacy. It's just not. And if it is, then that's just a fallacy I don't agree with. I don't agree that's a logical fallacy. Rather, what it's doing is it's showing the premise is flawed. And the reason the premise we know the premise is flawed is because it leads to this inconsistent conclusion. So it's, it's actually closer to um, a reductio, ad absurd, reducing an argument to absurdity. It's more in that ballpark than it is in the U2 ballpark. In other words, I, I hate to bring this up because... I know Dr. White and Dr. Flowers, you know, have a uh, a little bit of a beef 
which if we're being frank, I think that's mostly on James White, but I digress. Um, so I hate to quote James White and, and maybe, maybe trigger all of Dr. Flowers followers, but I still think James White has this little catchphrase that he always says. And I think it's absolutely true. Inconsistency is the sign of a failed argument. Pointing out someone's inconsistency is not too, too quoque. That's not the U2 fallacy. Showing that someone's logic is not being equally applied or that when it is applied, it leads to these absurd conclusions. That's not you too. That's not too quoque. Just like it isn't too quoque for me to get in my car and say, well, no, you're wrong because you too drove the car when it was this cold. So that can't be the problem. That again, that is not the too quoque fallacy. But let me show you some other reasons why simply turning the tables on somebody is not all, all of the time to quoque because there are some other fallacies that need to be looked at look at this definition for example of what's called special pleading special pleading is a logical fallacy and it says this is the definition an argument in which the speaker deliberately ignores aspects that are unfavorable to their point of view uh that that's a good definition although it's a little ambiguous here's here's a more specific definition this is how most people think of it a special pleading fallacy is this applying standards principles and or rules to other people or circumstances while making oneself or certain circumstances exempt from the same critical criteria without providing adequate justification look at this let's read again applying standards or principles or rules to other people or circumstances while making oneself or certain circumstances exempt from the same critical criteria without providing adequate justification that is what i was trying to do it was not you two fallacy it's not too quoque fallacy if anything dr flowers and annie stanley were committing the fallacy of special pleading they were saying Calvinists are determinists and determinism ruins church ministry. And it is not too quoted to say, I can disprove that premise by exposing your special pleading. Because you too, actually, whether you know it or not, believe in determinism, a different form, but it is determinism. And yet you're not ruining church ministry. That's in that's special pleading. Calvinists, they cannot be determinists, but we can. That's special pleading. And it's not you too to point out that that's special pleading. To say, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. This is inconsistent standards. You're determinist too. Why why are we getting kicked out of the church for being determinist when you're determinist too? That is not too quoque. That is not the you too fallacy. In other words, what I would want to ask Dr. Flowers is, how could you ever identify somebody was committing special pleading without bringing up, without saying you too, but but you, but you, but you, right? So I think that he's wrong. And, and here's, here's another example. Look at this definition of proving too much. It's a logical fallacy when somebody proves too much. And notice what it says. The fallacy of proving too much refers to an argument that reaches a conclusions, well, that's a typo, a conclusion which contradicts things that are known to be true or contradicts the premises in that argument. Proving too much is a logical fallacy. And it's an important one for people to know. So, you know, let me give you an example. This is, um, this is not standard, 
Islamic apologetics. So I'm not trying to paint Islamic apologists in a bad light here, but just, just to make a clear example, I want you to imagine that I was debating uh, a Muslim and they said something to me like this. Well, you shouldn't believe the Bible because if you look at the manuscripts, there are uh, textual variants. So you cannot believe in a book that has textual variants. So you should be a Muslim instead. What is a potential response we could say? Some of the early manuscripts of the Quran have textual variants. In other words, but you too have special variants. Now, is that the U2 fallacy? No. It is demonstrating that they have actually proved too much. Their argument has proved too much. By making the argument that they made, they actually went too far and disproved their own system. Their logic is inconsistent and their logic proves too much. And it is logically valid to point that out. It is not a logical fallacy to say, whoa, 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 you've proved too much. You see, if your premise is true, then you've destroyed your own faith. That's actually a good argument. That's not too quoque. So it was not too quoque. It was not the U2 fallacy when they criticized determinism. And rather than giving an answer for determinism, I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If being a determinist ruins church ministry, then you've ruined church ministry too because you're a determinist. That is not too quoque. That's not the U2 fallacy. Yes, of course, I'm saying the words U2, but it's still not the U2 fallacy. So I, 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 I am, believe, happy to be corrected, I do not believe that I was guilty of the U2 fallacy by pointing out the double standard, the inconsistent logical standards that Dr. Flowers and Annie Stanley are willing to apply to Calvinists but not apply to themselves. That is not too quoque. That's not the U2 fallacy. Now, the next problem is I really do believe, and, and these are related, um, I really do believe that Dr. Flowers really missed the point of a lot of what I was saying. I'm not accusing him of misrepresentation of my position. I'm not accusing him of that. Uh, but I am accusing him of, of, of missing out on the very narrow context in which I said a lot of these things. And that applies to this, the argument of Tukoke that I just made, but I want to make some more specific examples. And, and let me explain what I think happened. Dr. Flowers does this a lot, right? His entire Soteriology 101 is just dedicated to Calvinism. And so uh, he is, is very familiar with debating Calvinists and talking about issues as Calvinists. And so what I think happened was, as he listened to my response video, he heard me say a lot of, of common sayings and common verses that he hears in these Calvinist, non-Calvinist debates. And so he heard me say what he's heard someone else say a thousand times. And so he immediately jumped to his typical response to that. But what that misses is that misses the more narrow context that I was in. Let me remind you of something that I said in my videos that he even played me saying. Remember this. Again, kind of my main purpose through these video series is not just to correct errors and defend Calvinism, but it's just, it's, it's more to get to this issue of the local church, right? Should our Calvinists going to, excuse me, negatively impact your local church, right? So there, even in my own video, I said, I'm not just addressing Calvinism versus non-Calvinism, although I did address that to some degree, there's inescapable, but I was also trying to address the issues they brought up about how this affects the church. That was what the video was titled after all, by the way. 
And so I think he wanted to have these big, broad debates about determinism, divine determinism, Calvinism, when I was responding to something a little bit more narrow. And so his responses were actually out of context. He was missing the point that I was actually making. He thought I was making just some standard Calvinist rhetorical response, but I wasn't. I was applying these, these verses and these sayings in different ways, and I think he missed that. Let me give you some examples. The problem with the scenario that Colin's not addressing is that on in your worldview, you actually hired the person to go do this to your daughter. And so you're not just sitting back allowing for your daughter to have this happen to her. You're actually planning and bringing it to pass for this to happen to her. And you have no explanation for it except to say, you have the same problem, guys, because you're not stopping the kidnapper from doing this to your daughter when it happens. And we're going, that's not an answer to the problem. That's just refocusing the problem onto so us. Here's the point. There are plenty of ways that God could stop your children from getting hurt. And he doesn't do that. You would do that. So by their own logic, they love their children more than God does. Now, and here's what you can't do. You can't say, well, if, if I knew what God knew about the situation, then I would make the same choice as he did. The reason I act differently is because I don't know as much as him, because that would then carry back over into Calvinism in terms of election. So I don't know that he even sees the backwardsness of his claims, because remember, on his view, at least if he holds to Calvinism qua Calvinism, as John Calvin taught it, as is taught in the Westminster, as taught in the London Baptist Convention, then the reason that those people are doing what they're doing is because God sovereign and unchangeably decreed for them to do those things. And, 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 and unless he's willing to give an answer, a theodicy for those claims, then he's not even qualified to start coming after our view yet. Now, here's what he did. He took those snippets of what I was saying, and he immediately jumped to divine determinism, compatibilism, and theodicy. And his point was, Calvinists need to be able to give a defense of their theodicy. Calvinists need to be able to give a defense of of divine of divine determinism and compatibilism and simply saying you've got all these problems does not prove divine determinism it does not answer our questions about compatibilism it does not answer our objections to your theodicy and guess what i 100 percent agree but what's the problem you want to know what point i was making in those i wasn't making a point about compatibilism the analogy that i was using about a kidnapper kidnapping uh, our daughter was not an analogy for theodicy or divine determinism. He, it, it, right, so he, he heard this analogy and, and he immediately jumped to theodicy. He thought I was criticizing Arminian theodicy. He thought I was talking about divine, but that, that wasn't the point that I was making. The point that I was making is that the logic, the logic that I would never do this to my child, in Calvinism, God does do this to my child, therefore... Therefore, uh, God must not love my child as much as me. That's the issue I was addressing. I was not addressing Calvinism. I was not addressing divine determinism. I was not addressing th even theodicy, although it's admittedly re related. But I wasn't addressing compatibilism. I wasn't giving a defense for Calvinism. I was merely addressing, your, does your logic hold up? Does the logic, premise one, I would never do something bad to my child. Premise two, God does do this bad thing to my child. Therefore, I love my child more than God. 
I, that is the focus of my analogy. That logic does not hold up. And how does it not hold up? Because if we were to apply that same logic to things that non-Calvinists agree with, then they would fail the same, the same test, right? So look at the analogy. Premise one, I would never do X to my child. Premise two, God does X to my child. Therefore, conclusion, I love my child more than God. Right? That's, this is what I'm addressing. I'm not addressing determinism. I'm not addressing Calvinism. I'm not even addressing theodicy, technically. I'm addressing that logical problem. And here's, here's how, here's, and here's my point. The Arminian cannot rely on that logical proof that logic, they cannot rely on that logic to prove that Calvinists have a, a, a skewed view of God's love because that proves too much. It's special pleading because they do that, right? And here's how. Premise one, I would never permit harm to my child. I'm sorry, this was a typo. This was like a, a plug and play thing for, and I forgot to edit it, but you get the point still. I would never permit harm to my child. God does permit harm to my child. Therefore, I love my child more than God. So that was the analogy I was making. My analogy was not about compatibilism or Calvinism or anything. It was just a matter of saying, you can't, this logic is faulty. God does things that I wouldn't do. Therefore, I must love more than God. That, that was the, bit, the, the heart and soul of their argument. Oh, God doesn't elect my child and I would elect my child. So I love my child more than God does. That's a bad argument. That's faulty logic. And we can expose that by applying it to other circumstances. And that was the point I made in the video. I would never let harm fall upon my child. God does let harm fall upon my child. Therefore, I must love my child more than God. So the Arminian needs, or free me, the, the provisionalist needs to be consistent. If, if the logic holds up, then you need to admit that, yeah, you love your children more than God too. But why doesn't Leighton Flowers admit that? Well, he, he says because there's a missing premise. And he argues that there's, there's the missing premise is that God, because he knows all things, God permits things to happen to my child for a good reason. I would never permit harm to my child. God does permit harm to my child. Premise three, God has a good reason for permitting harm. Therefore, I can't conclude that I love my child more than God. But you want to know what the problem is? That third premise, you could put into the Calvinist system. I would never not elect my child. God does not elect my child. God has a good reason to not elect my child. Therefore, I can't conclude that I love my child more than God. So again, what's the overall point I'm, I'm trying to get at? And hopefully I'm not being too redundant. Leighton Flowers missed the context of my analogy. My analogy had nothing to do with Calvinism or Arminianism. It had, or tradition, provisionalism. It had nothing to do with compatibilism or even theodicy. I mean, it was related to theodicy a little bit, but it was to simply point out the flaw in the logic. If you believe that Calvinists think that God, or let me put it this way. If you think that Calvinist theology inevitably leads to, to us loving people more than God does, that's fine. But the logic you presented to prove that doesn't prove it. You need a different route. You need a different argument. And my analogy still stands. My analogy refuted the logic of your, of, of, of your formula. 
Because again, if you are consistent, if you're not special pleading, and if you're not proving too much, then you would crumble under the same exact logic. And therefore, you can't say Calvinists will harm church ministry, but Arminians won't, because you have the same problem. So how can only one harm and the other not harm? How come the car can start for my wife, but it can't start for me? You see, it's not too quoque. It's exposing the flaw in the premise. And the premise was not compatibilism or theodicy or Calvinism. The premise was about the love of God. And he totally missed that. And he just jumped right into the Calvinist-Arminian debate. But the context was more narrow than that. Let me do one thing and recommend a book. Dr. Flowers was very eager to debate divine determinism. And he thought that most of the claims that I was making was about divine determinism, but they weren't. He's missing the point of most of them. But just in case I have any Calvinist listeners who want some resources on divine determinism, uh, the best one is this book right here. Uh, you're going to have to forgive me because the author is, is, is a Frenchman, and so his name is hard for me to pronounce, but I believe it's Guillaume Bignon. Uh, this book, that's how you spell it, Excusing Sinners and Blaming God. This entire book is dedicated just to divine determinism. It's just a book on determinism from a Calvinistic perspective, and it's phenomenal. It's really good. So if you want a very thorough response, or not response, but a very thorough presentation of divine determinism, you need to get this book. It is fantastic. But again, the point is Leighton Flowers wanted to d debate divine determinism, and he turned all of my comments into comments about divine determinism, but that actually isn't what they were about. He was uh, missing the point. Should we, should we think of the cross as a good thing or a bad thing? And I would be willing to admit that the Arminian would say both. Okay. So this is just the, that, that's the whole cross um, appeal, uh, the Calvary appeal. Um, and, and this is something I've written before, and, I, and I'll just restate it again. When we object, Calvinists, when we object to the concept of divine determinism, our God's sovereign work to bring about all things whatsoever come to pass, including rape, murder, molestations, all those horrible bad things, right? And you appeal to the crucifixion as your proof that God brings about all moral evil? I never said that. Go back and listen to the video. Listen to when I brought up the crucifixion and listen to the question that was posed that they were the discussion that they were having where I interjected with the crucifixion. And guess what? I never once made the claim that Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 4, the cross, that it proves that God decreed all moral evil. That's what he just said. When Calvinists appeal to the crucifixion to prove that God determines all moral evil, you show me in the video where I made that claim. Show me. I never said that. I didn't say that at all. I think he's heard other Calvinists say that. And if he has, then shame on them, because that's not Calvinist proof text. That's, that's, that's not why we appeal to those texts. I'll get to that in a minute. What was happening in the video when I appealed to the cross? The issue was Dr. Flowers criticized Calvinists for this. He criticized Calvinists for ever calling anything a bad thing. Right? Here was Dr. Flowers' argument. When something bad happens, say 9-11... Calvinists look at 9-11 and say, this is terrible, this is awful, this is wicked, this is sinful, look at all of this death, this is, this is a horrible thing. And Leighton Flowers, Dr. Flowers, his argument was, you can't call that a bad thing because you believe God ultimately decreed that and God does all things for his glory, so that's actually a good thing. God, 
God decreed it. God wanted it to happen. It's for his glory. So how on earth could you look at it and call it a bad thing? That's when I brought the cross up. And if you listen to what I said, I, 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 was, I was very specific. I did not say the cross proves God determines all moral evil. That's not even in the ballpark of what I was saying. I brought the crucifixion up to say this, that God's decrees, his, when he decrees something, because of Calvinists could get into the descriptive will and the prescriptive will of God, but, but you don't even have to get that deep into the philosophy of it. The cross proves that one event can simultaneously be both a good thing and a bad thing. It can be bad in a certain way and it can be good in a certain way. And so the point that I made by bringing up the cross was not at all to say the cross proves that God decrees all moral evil. That, that, that is not what I said, and that's not what I've ever said. I brought it up to say, we can look at something that God has decreed and say this is bad. Because it can be bad in a certain sense, and it can be good in, a, in another sense. I want to hear Dr. Flowers' answer. Was the crucifixion of Christ a good thing or a bad thing? Should we celebrate it? Should we rejoice in it? Or should we lament it and mourn it? And I can, as I said in the first video, I can almost guarantee he's going to say both. It depends. Because in a certain sense, we should mourn it. It was horrible. But in another sense, we should celebrate it. It was the best thing that's ever happened. That would be his response. And that's our response too. And so I would love to hear him pick one. Is he going to say we shouldn't celebrate in the cross? We shouldn't celebrate in the glory of our redemption? In the glory of Christ's love displayed? Why should we not celebrate it? So he's not going to go that route. So he's going to say, no, uh, we should celebrate, but we shouldn't lament it. Really? That the creatures rebelled against the creator to such a point that they murdered their own God? That the most innocent, perfect man ever was tortured to death. You're not going to say that's a bad thing. So no matter which road he picks, I could criticize him. Why? Because what does the cross prove? Not that God predestines all moral evil, but it proves that one event can be viewed in different ways. And so his criticism of Calvinists lamenting bad things falls apart and the cross is my proof of that. But he heard me bring up the cross and he immediately jumped to Calvinists use this to prove God determines evil. And then he went off. He literally read a blog he wrote like a year ago. He just read the whole blog refuting determinism and its application to the cross. But that wasn't the point I was making. The point that I was making, again, is that we can look at bad things like 9-11, like cancer, or like the crucifixion. And we can say this is a bad thing, even though God decreed it. And we can still simultaneously say, well, in a certain sense, it's a good thing. God will use it for his glory, just like the cross. So he totally missed the context. He totally misunderstood what I was saying. However, uh, I do want to say, though, let me talk about the cross, though. Again, I don't think that it proves God determines all moral evil. I agree that that's what we call a non sequitur, right? Just because God does something one way doesn't mean he always does it that way. But there is more to the crucifixion appeal, though, than just this very narrow criticism that I was addressing. It still is a very powerful argument for Calvinists. The vast majority of the issues that people have to determinism are refuted by the cross. So does, does the crucifixion prove that God predestines all evil? No. But guess what it does prove? 
it does prove that God predestines some evil, right? We know that God did it at least one time. Let's look at just one of those passages. This is from Acts chapter 2. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So here's, here's the problem for provisionalists. The cross doesn't prove that God predestined all moral evil. But it does prove that he predestined at least some moral evil. He did predestine the cross. He did plan the cross. And by planning the cross, he had to then therefore plan the free will decisions of the people who decided to kill Jesus and put Jesus on that cross. So what does Acts 2 and Acts 4 prove? That God predestines every single thing? No, it doesn't prove that. But it does prove he can predestine evil and not be culpable of evil. It does prove that he can predestine free will choices. Dr. Flowers, in his response video, said he quoted William Lane Craig and C.S. Lewis saying, well, that's a logical impossibility. That doesn't make sense. It can't happen. Well, apparently it can. Acts 2 does prove that. doesn't prove God predestined all evil, but it does prove he can predestine evil. He can predestine the choices of men and still not be accountable for them. So don't, don't hear me saying that Acts 2 and Acts 4 is not devastating to non-Calvinistic worldviews. They are. Acts 2 and Acts 4 is devastating to, to anyone who de- denies divine determinism. Acts 2 and Acts 4 destroys your worldview. It wrecks your worldview. It does. So I do believe that. And I do believe that the more narrow sense that I brought it up in the video was accurate and it refuted Dr. Flowers' point. But never once did I say or have I ever said that the crucifixion proves God predestines every single thing. What he wants. I'm not going to create two wills of God in order to make my philosophy fit into the scripture. Now, this is one of the reasons why I think the cross destroys Leighton Flowers' worldview. He just criticized Calvinists for creating the two wills of God. And he says, I'm not going to create two wills of God. And he claims that we do that because we have this overriding philosophy that we're cramming into the text. But go back to Acts chapter 2 and look at, read through Acts chapter 4. When the cross is discussed, there are two wills of God. And we just proved this. This is a huge flaw in his worldview. He's saying, I refuse to believe in two wills of God. So then that means he does have to pick one of the choices. The cross was either good or bad. So what is it going to be, Dr. Flowers? Are you going to say it wasn't a bad, sinful, terrible thing for the Son of God to be murdered and tortured? Are you going to say that wasn't bad? Are you going to say God didn't actually express in his law, thou shalt not murder? Are you going to say that God in no way, shape, or form thought that this was a terrible thing, didn't want it to happen? That's going to be a tough case to make. But it's also going to be a really tough case to make that God in no way, shape, or form did want the cross to happen. After all, the text says he planned it. He predestined it. Jesus was praying in the garden, please, Father, take this cup from me. And he said, no. So how do you make sense of the crucifixion in light of Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 without believing that there's a divine, a prescriptive will and a decretive will, or what some call a decretive will? That there's a sense in which God did not will this because he thinks murder is evil and he doesn't want people to sin. He didn't want people to murder his son. But there's another, a redemptive sense, a decorative sense in which he did want this to happen. You see, we believe in two wills of God because Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 demands that. It's not a philosophy we're cramming in the text. It's not Calvin's Institutes I'm cramming into the text. 
The text tells us that God hates those God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. The, the text of scripture tells me, God tells us, that we, thou shalt not murder. The text tells me in scripture that you shall not even hate someone. And if you've hated someone, you've committed murder. So I know that God did not want the crucifixion to happen. He told people, do not murder. He told people, do not hate. He told people, do not shed innocent blood. He didn't want that to happen. But I know he predestined the cross. I know the cross was his plan for his glory. I know when Christ said, please take this cup from me, he said, no, this must be done. So he did want the cross. He didn't want the cross, but he did want the cross. The text demands two wills of God. And that Leighton Flowers is not willing to affirm two wills of God shows that he's actually the one not letting the text speak for itself. He's actually the one who's, who has an anti-Calvinistic agenda he's trying to read into the text. But the two wills of God is not Calvin. It's Acts 2 and it's Acts 4. I am not making the claim that because God predestined one thing, he therefore predestined everything. That's not the claim I'm making. That's, that's a logical fallacy. But one does have to wonder, though, is it possible for God to just predestine one thing? The problem is, is that human behavior is so interconnected that it takes a, a lot of clever philosophical reasoning to justify how God can predestine just the cross, but not all of the things that led up to the cross. Apparently, right, if we, you go back to Acts chapter 2, God can predestine Pilate giving up Jesus to the Jews doesn't that entail that he predestined Pilate to become Pilate? Could Pilate have committed suicide when he was 13? No, because then he would have thwarted God's predestined plan. So God can't just predestine Pilate to give up Jesus. He has to predestine Pilate becoming Pilate in order to predestine Pilate giving up Jesus. Could Pilate have said no? Could Pilate, remember, Pilate wrestled with this. Pilate's wife, do not kill that man. Pilate, there's a sense he didn't want to do it, but he did. Could he have done otherwise? Could his free will have disrupted God's predestined plan? So I do wonder, I'm not saying it necessarily proves that God predestines all things, but it certainly proves he's predestined at least more than one thing. Uh, here's, for example, another book. I don't know if this book is even still in print, but it's very good. This is a book called No Place for Sovereignty. If you're a, No matter where you land on this debate, you need to read this book. This is a fantastic book. Let me read something that he says. R.K. McCregor Wright. Let me read something he says in this book. Let us for a moment imagine how many free will choices would be involved in moving. He's talking about how um, Mary and Joseph, when they were pregnant with Jesus and there was a census and then they had to move. And um, So he says, let us imagine for a moment how many free will choices would be involved in moving these people from north of Palestine to the southern city where the prophet said Jesus was to be born, right? So his larger context, by the way, is how can God fulfill prophecy? He, he prophesies things will happen. How can he fulfill those with all of these free will choices he has no control over? Suppose they had decided to start a week later. After all, such a census would take many months to complete, even if everyone without exception complied as asked. Then, because Mary was pregnant, they might have decided to leave her with her sister Elizabeth, with Joseph traveling alone to represent the whole family. Or they might have decided to stop along the way at Samaria or Bethel or on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Or they might have decided to go on to the next town when they saw how crowded the little city of David was when they finally got there. Any one or more of these decisions would have ignored the highly determined body chemistry of the young mother-to-be, of which 
the participants knew virtually nothing, and the baby would have been born in the wrong town or worse, somewhere on the road between towns. This seriously damages the familiar Christmas story. It seems that in order to fulfill this one prediction in the Old Testament about Bethlehem, God needed to have control over every atom in Mary's body and every atom in the entire Roman bureaucracy. God had to know in advance how every free will decision in the sequence would turn out. Nothing less could guarantee the success of this one prediction. So he's addressing something slightly different, but I think the logic still applies. How could God predestine only the cross? If he has nothing to do with all of the events that led up to that moment that he predestined. Does the cross prove that God always predestines everything? No. But it certainly he does prove he predestines at least one thing. And then I think there's a logical case to be made. Well, actually, he had to predestine a whole lot. And that keeps going back and back and back to I, I do think you could reasonably deduce from the text that he predestines all things. The Acts 2, Acts 4, it is destructive to the provisionalist worldview. It's very destructive to the provisionalist worldview, but the overall point, that wasn't the case that I was making. I was making an entirely separate case, but he wanted to get into his common debates that he's used to getting into. Uh, but notice another time that he tried to accuse me of saying something that I actually didn't say. And so these are the kinds of things we're just going to continue to push back on pastors like Colin, who I think are well-intending, but maybe have not talked through some of these issues in depth to realize that just because God brought about the first Passover through the hardening of, uh, of Pharaoh does not therefore mean that God always hardens every person's heart in the exact same way that he hardened Pharaoh in that particular circumstance and instance. Again, I've never said that. I didn't say that in the last video. Uh, I didn't say that. No, I might, I might, I might believe that, but it's not on the basis of the logic he's presenting. I've never once in any blog I've published, I've never once in the last video, I never said God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Therefore, on that basis, anyone who does anything is because God hardened their heart. That might be a piece of the puzzle, but that's that's not what I said. That's just not what I said. Again, he wants to get back into the wider debate that he's constantly having with Calvinists. Maybe other Calvinists have said that, but I didn't say that. I didn't say that in the video. So it's why I put this up to, he, he, he's missing the point. He's missing the point not work for you to be able to critique something that you believe God brought to pass for his own self-glorification. Well, they toss it into the bucket of mystery, which. No, we don't. <laughs> Did I just toss it into mystery? And, and, and I've known plenty of competent Calvinists who can say what I just said. It's not mysterious. We do not just toss it, toss it into the bucket of mystery. That's just, that's false. Hi, my name is Charles. Hi, Charles. This is something I've struggled with my whole Christian walk and um, find it most difficult, especially when witnessing. Basically, how do you reconcile the duality of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? Like, for example, if someone asks you, well, if God literally brings about everything, how can he blame me for sinning? Well, I don't know the answer to that. I've never met anybody that knows the answer to that. <laughs> okay, there's the appeal to mystery right there. So, Colin, um, you you may not think that Calvinists appeal to mystery to that question, but um, but they do. Um, Calvinists that know th what the question is and what we're trying to get to um, do appeal to this mystery. Oh, so he really got me right here. I am saying we don't appeal to mystery on that. That we don't appeal to mystery. No competent Calvinist does. And then he points to one of the more prominent Calvinists in the country, saying, "Yeah, we, that's mysterious. I don't know." But again. Go back and listen to the video 
and then compare the compare the question that I was discussing with the question that was asked to Dr. MacArthur because they were entirely different. So I was on tape saying, I don't appeal to mystery. I didn't appeal to mystery. No one appeals to mystery. But the question that's begged then is, what was I saying we don't appeal to mystery to? What was the context that I was talking about? It wasn't the same question that that young man asked Dr. MacArthur. That young man asked Dr. MacArthur about determinism, about God's sovereignty and man's free will. He said, how can God predestine everything, but man still be held responsible? And Dr. MacArthur said, I don't know. That's mysterious. But when Andy Stanley, in the first video, accused Calvinists of kicking it in the mystery bucket, is that what we were talking about? Is that the question? No. Again, the question in context was, how can Calvinists look at something God decreed and say this is a bad thing? That is not the same question that was asked to Dr. MacArthur. They said a Calvinist can't look at something like 9-11 and say this is bad because God decreed it and he decreed it for his glory. So they have to say this is good. And I said, no, it can be good in one sense and it can be bad in another, in another sense, just like the cross. And then Andy Stanley said, Calvinists just kick it to the mystery bucket. And I said, no, we don't. I just answered that for you. It's good in one sense. It's bad in another sense. Look at the cross. So we were not dealing with the same questions. We were not at all dealing with the same questions. He was dealing with sovereignty, free will, divine determinism. I was dealing with the very narrow question of how can you look at a bad thing and call it a bad thing if God decreed it? That's why I notice how at the end of his clip, he said, those who understand the question and those who understand what we're getting at. But notice how he's talking in, in the we, us, non-Calvinists. He's talking about the big, broad, divine determinism debate and then accusing me, you haven't thought through this, you don't understand this, you haven't thinking. But no, actually what's happening is you're talking about a different debate. You can claim this is what we were getting at, right? You can try to do damage control and you can try to work back and say, well, here's, here's really what the question really was. But I don't think that flies with most people. I heard the question, I responded to the question, and I did not respond with mystery. And then you brought up a different question and a different person responding to mystery. It's entirely different contexts. You jumped to the Calvinist-Arminian debate, but you didn't actually listen to what I was saying and what I was responding to. So if you ask me, how does God determine, how can God determine people's wills but not be held accountable for it? then yeah, I uh, might say something like, well, I, I don't know. I think that's mysterious. But if you ask me, why would you look at a bad thing and, and, and mourn it when you should be celebrating it? I'm not going to appeal to mystery. I'm going to say, well, let's go to Acts chapter 2. Let me show you how things can be good and bad in different ways. I didn't appeal to mystery. No callous appeals to mystery. And if you focused on the question that I was actually responding to, then you would see that this example from MacArthur, it, it doesn't work at all. So let's, let's talk about mystery. There is a place in time, I would agree with MacArthur, there's some mystery here. But notice where I'm claiming mystery is on a question that the Bible itself claims mystery for. I have mystery where the Bible tells me to have mystery. Here's what I mean by that. The question that Dr. MacArthur answered was not the question that I was answering, but it is a question found in the Bible. 
and it's found in Romans chapter 9. Look at Romans chapter 9, verse 19. Paul is writing this, and Paul is anticipating objections to his very high view of divine determinism. And he knows that this will be one of the number one objections that people ask me. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? That is the exact question that Dr. MacArthur was just asked, right? What is this question asking? This question is asking, why does God still find fault? And then rhetorically asks, who can resist his will? What it's saying is that God is ultimately finding fault with people for doing what he willed them to do. In other words, how can God will someone to do something and then find fault with them for doing it? That is the question that was asked to Dr. MacArthur, and it's the question that Leighton Flowers constantly criticized Calvinists for in his video. Leighton Flowers thinks Calvinism is insane because when you peel the onion to its core, we're essentially saying that God finds fault in people for doing what he decreed them to do. But Dr. Flowers is not the first person to ever say, that doesn't make sense to me. Someone asked that to Paul. And what was Paul's response? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molder say to what will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So Paul asked this question, and he didn't answer it at least not in the way that that you know non-Calvinists want it to be answered. Paul answers the question of divine determinism by essentially saying, you have no business asking that question. Who are you to even ask? Who are you to question God? So why isn't that a sufficient answer for Dr. Flowers, right? If you want an answer to Dr. MacArthur, there's two answers. It's a mystery, but it's none of your business, right? I mean, that's essentially what Paul says. That's none of our business to question how God does things. But notice, he doesn't reject that God works this way. How would Dr. Flowers work this? answer this question? He would say, no, God doesn't find fault because lots of people can resist the will of God. He would respond in the exact opposite. Paul affirms the heart of the question, but then says, you have no business asking that. Who are you to question God? So yes, I would appeal to mystery on this question, but Paul appeals to mystery, right? Paul doesn't answer it. So I, I have biblical permission to appeal to the mystery where I do. But here's what I also found really funny about the video is, is I think he had a little bit of an inconsistent approach to whether he's going to criticize Calvinists for their mystery or not. For example, check this out. God is able to know the libertarianly free autonomous choices of creatures. How does he do that? I have no clue. It's beyond my comprehension. It's infinite quality of God that I do not fully grasp. Now, do we have mysteries too? Yeah, my mystery is what I just talked about earlier. I don't know how it is that God foreknows the libertarianly free choices of Peter to deny him three times before the rooster crows and for Peter to be free in his choices to do that. I don't know. I believe that Peter was free, libertarianly free, and I believe God foreknew it. I believe both of those things are true. And I believe God can foreknow, therefore, the future free choices of creatures without being culpable without being implicit within them, without being the cause of them, without being the decreer of them. I believe that he does that. How? I have no idea. If I could explain how he does it, then it wouldn't be supernatural, would it? So there is Dr. Flowers admitting that we have mystery too. By we, I mean uh, 
he and his other his fellow provisionists really all non-Calvinists, right? So he's admitting, like, yeah, there are lots of things that we don't have an answer for either. And I don't have a problem with that because, like I said, I think that I have mystery in my worldview as well. But the reason I have a problem with that is I don't feel like he really pushed back at Andy Stanley very hard when Andy Stanley was making fun of us for kicking stuff to the mystery bucket. First and foremost, we don't kick to the mystery bucket what Andy Stanley claimed we kicked to the mystery bucket. But even if you say, well, this is, he was, what they were ultimately getting at was this question, and that is what you kicked in the mystery bucket. Okay, fine, yeah, we do kick that to the mystery bucket, but you just admitted that you also kick things to the mystery bucket. So isn't there a little special pleading going on here? Right, Calvinists, oh, they just kick it to the mystery bucket. They got no answer. Here's Leighton Flower, I have no idea. I have no idea. How, 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 is, how is my worldview not ultimately determinism because God knows all things i don't know again their mystery bucket is okay our mystery bucket isn't okay that's not too coke that's not you too that's special pleading that's special pleading it's okay for them to have mystery it's not okay for us to have mystery or better yet better to the context of the video for some reason our mysteries ruins local church ministry their mysteries makes local church ministry thrive that's special pleading how how is that fair? How is that consistent? But to add to the inconsistency, not only did they say in the video that we have mystery, but then he, after saying that, he immediately turns around and criticizes us for not having mystery. Would it? If I could explain how the card trick is done, then I am showing how it's just a card trick. It's not supernatural. If I can explain to you how... God knows the future free choices of creatures, or I can explain to you how God creates something from nothing, then how supernatural is it? If I, if I could get you guys together, hey, come here, guys. I figured out how to create something from nothing. Let me show you how to do it. Then aren't you going to recognize that's not supernatural anymore? That's very human, and it's very basic. If I can explain to you the infinite knowledge of God in such a way is to explain to you how God knows the future free choices of creatures, then it wouldn't be supernatural anymore. But that's exactly what Calvinism and maybe you could even argue some forms of open theism have done. They've ultimately said on Calvinism, I know how God knows the future free choices of creatures. He sovereignly and unchangeably decrees what they're going to do. And he still calls them free because after all, they're doing what they desire. And since he's causing their desires, then he's calling them free. But at the same time, he's the one who's causally determining what happens. And so they think they have figured it out. They have figured out the card trick. They figured out how God knows what Peter's going to do uh, when he denies him. He's a, how, how does God know that Peter denies him three times for the rooster crows? Because God causally and unchangeably decreed for Peter to deny him three times for the rooster crows. Pretty simple, right? I just explained to you how God knows what Peter would do before the rooster crows. God decreed for Peter to do that. God decreed his choices and his actions and his circumstances in such a way that he could not have done other than what he did. And so Calvinists have explained the supernatural to you. They've explained how God does these kinds of things. He, he causally decrees these things. He causally determines them through secondary causes and means behind the scenes. He causes people to deny him and then judges them for it. And it's just inexplicable as how he does it. So do we have mystery or not? <laughs> so what is it? Do we have mystery or not? Because first they criticize us for kicking this to the mystery bucket. And then he immediately turns around and says, Calvinists have no mystery. They've got it all figured out. And if you've got no mystery, you've got no supernatural. So they don't have a supernatural God because they've got no mystery. So do we have mystery or not? Do we appeal to mystery or not? Because it sounds like you're saying you do appeal to mystery, but you don't appeal to mystery. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like we're damned if we do, damned if we don't.
How do you explain determinism? I don't know. It's mysterious. <laughs> See, those Calvinists, they just kick it into the mystery bucket. They got no answers. Okay, fine. It's not mysterious. Let me explain it. There's God has a divine decree. It's called the grounding principle. He knows the future based on his decree. And the, Oh, what? So you don't have any mystery? How is it supernatural then? Like, What are we supposed to do? <laughs> this is inconsistent double standards. He just contradicted himself, by the way. You do have mystery, but you don't have mystery. But by the way, it's okay for us to have mystery, but you can't have mystery. This makes no sense, folks. This, this, just, this just makes no sense. And like I said, we do have mystery, but it's where the Bible also has mystery. And if we do have mystery, you can't turn around and criticize us for figuring out the card trick. Because apparently we haven't figured out the card trick because we're kicking it to mystery. What I would say is that uh, we still have mystery like Leighton Flowers does, but it's on a slightly different topic, right? We've added a piece to the puzzle and then we have mystery on that piece, but we still have, in other words, he's criticizing us for believing that God knows the future based on his decree has solved the mystery, but it hasn't. It's, it's, it's just refocused the mystery because that still brings us back to Romans in chapter nine. How can God still find fault for who can resist his will? And that's where I say, I don't know. I mean, like I said, this gives a pretty solid answer to that. But I, at the end of the day, for the most part, I'm, I'm willing to admit, yeah, there's, there's, some, there's some mystery there. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the love of God, right? So he had, a, he had a, a few things to say during this discussion of whether Calvinists love their kids more than God does. And so I want to talk about that specifically. Notice what he says here. How can, why not just say, yes, Paul and his humanists um, and his limited knowledge, he's just a man though, and, and he, he loves those Israelites more than God does. And that's just the way it is. Who are you to question God? Why, why not just take that approach? It, because it's the consistent approach. It may sound uh, too hyper in your Calvinism, or it may sound too harsh to just come out and say that. But it seems to me if Calvinism is going to be consistent, at least true five-point Calvinism is going to be consistent, it needs you just to own it. And just say, yeah, it's possible that you love your child more than God does. So here's a problem with this. Um, what he said here is actually is actually very true. I really respect this. And I agree with him. We do need to, to some degree, maybe just own it. But here's the problem. I wasn't criticizing his overall premise as much as I was criticizing the logic he took to get there. In other words, let me be very blunt. Depending on what you mean... There are lots of ways in which I'm willing, I am willing to own it. Yeah, maybe I do love my children more than God does. Maybe I love that person more than God does. I'm willing to own that, but it depends on what you mean by that and how you got there. So he's saying, why don't Calvinists just own it? Well, I'd be willing to own it, but the problem is the logic you used to determine was faulty logic. And that takes us back to what we already talked about. You can't say, God does this to my kids. I would never do that to my kids. Therefore... God must uh, not love my kids as much as me. Why can't you say that? Because he believes that. He believes that, that God does things that he wouldn't necessarily do. Unless he were God and he had the same knowledge as God, but then that would apply to us, which is what I said in the video. So I was criticizing the logic more than I was criticizing the conclusion. He said in his own video, if you believe in any systematic that leaves you believing that you love people more than God, you need to abandon that systematic. And it's not you too to say, well, then you need to abandon provisionalism. 
Because provisionalism, according to the logic you presented, does lead you to that conclusion. Because there are things you wouldn't do that God does do. Point proven. So I was criticizing the logic, not necessarily the conclusion. Leighton kind of expected this, he anticipated this answer. And so his point was, well, the only, now Calvinists want to get into this big hole, well, what even is the love of God thing? The love of God is complicated, because that would be ultimately my answer, right? If, if you were to say, do you love, is it even possible that you love your child more than God? I would say, I don't think we do, but the love of God is a complicated thing. So in a certain way, in a certain sense, that might actually be true. And he anticipates that and he criticizes us for, for basically uh, making love or the goodness of God, the love of God, this ambiguous thing that we just can't know. And once it's nothing, then it's nothing, right? That, that tautology. If we can't know what the love of God is, if it's just so complicated and complex, we don't even know what it is. We don't even know what it looks like then it doesn't really make sense to call God love or to call him good. Lewis, that if, if, if we're ultimately saying God's just so utterly differently, different than we are, then what does it mean to even call him good? Because his good is our bad, his bad is our good. You can just say, we, we know he's no, we, we know not what, what he is. <laughs> we, he could be an all powerful demon for all we know, because we just can't, we can't even possibly uh, judge whether he's good or right or just because he's just so other than us. Well, the, the, the measure of judgment is based upon the revelation that he brings. And- but I would argue that's a false dichotomy. That's not what I did. That's not what Calvinists are doing. Leighton is trying to present this, present this false dichotomy where either the love of God is this very simple thing. He either does or he doesn't. Make your choice. Or it's so complex we have no idea what it even means. And I'm saying, isn't there a middle ground? right? So I think the love of God is not ambiguous. We can talk about it. The Bible talks about it. We can define it in scriptural parameters. But I'm, but I still think it's complex enough that it's really not so simple to just say, do you love your child more than God? I don't think that's really an answerable question unless we talk details. And by the way, there are some non-Calvinists who would agree with me on this. This is Mike Winger, who is a non-Calvinist, preaching a sermon on Romans 9, wherein he is attempting to refute Calvinism, admitting exactly what I'm saying. Matthew 5, 44, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies, Jesus says. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Here's a question. Do you think God requires you to love people he doesn't love? He says, love your enemies. Do you think God does not love his enemies? But it can be more complicated than just that, can't it? God has a love for all people, but that doesn't mean that everyone's going to be saved because God is also a just judge. Psalm 711 says God is angry with the wicked every day. Wait, I thought you loved me. How can you be angry with me? Have you had children? <laughs> you can love someone and be angry with them at the same time. Psalm 55, it says the boastful shall not stand in your sight and you hate all workers of iniquity. There is a a despising or hatred that goes alongside even though God does love them. How could he love and hate them? I want you to imagine if you had two children and one child, as they grow up, become adults, one kills the other. Do you still love that child? Do you hate that child? Do you have some complicated feelings towards that child? And I think God has God is capable of complicated thinking. <laughs> Surprise! And that's how the Bible seems to, seems to uh, dictate it. And there's a nearby verse in Romans eleven twenty eight that tells us something along these lines. It says, 
Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. Somehow there's this complex relationship of these unsaved Jewish people. They're, they're enemies for the sake of the gospel, but they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. There's, it's, com- it's complicated. It is complicated. Um, and the cross becomes the turning point. At the cross, you can, then, you can then shed yourself of all the issues that would cause you to be separated from God and just enjoy his love. That makes, that makes perfect sense to me. Personally, I do not struggle with this issue. Um, how can God, does he love the sinner and, and hate the sinner? Does he love the sinner or hate the sinner? And I'm like, well, both. It's complicated. I mean, this is, this is a complicated I, issue. It's complicated. The, the, the love of God, whether Leighton likes it or not, is more complicated. That's why I am willing to swallow that pill, but it's going to require conversation, definition, specificity, um, but in other words, like what Mike, like some of those examples, Mike Winger said, am I willing to admit that maybe Judas's mom loved Judas more than God? Yeah, I think that's possible. And I don't think that's that offensive to contemplate. Is it possible that God maybe loved Pharaoh less than Pharaoh's mother loved him? Yeah, that's very possible, right? It's, it's possible to love people in ways we're not supposed to love them. That's why Jesus says, unless you hate your father, mother, sister, brother, you cannot be my disciple. Um, we can have love and feelings for people that we shouldn't have. The Bible does talk about God hating people. It talks about God hating Esau, hating those who shed innocent blood. It, so there's a sense in which God loves and hates these people. And there might be someone who doesn't hate them at all and only loves them. So could you say that person loves that person more than God? Uh, yeah, they do. Because they have nothing but love. God has love and hate. So you get my point? This is not as simple as Leighton wants to make it, but saying this is a complex issue does not automatically mean we're guilty of who knows what love is, who knows what goodness is. We can, as Leighton admitted, define these things with a biblical standard, but he went beyond, or really not beyond, but he went under a biblical standard by saying he doesn't just use the Bible to define the love of God, he specifically uses Christ. And I want to examine that for a minute because it's... uh, it's 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 not as it's not as pretty as it sounds. Brings and who's the best revelation of who God is? Christ, who doesn't sacrifice enemies for his own sake. He sacrifices himself for the sake of enemies. He, he doesn't he doesn't um, show how powerful he is by controlling his enemies. He shows how glorious and loving he is by dying for his enemies. So, in other words, my theology and my. Uh, my sociology as well as my um, theodicy is Christocentric. It's centered on the person of Christ. What what does Christ tell us about the character of who God is? The climactic event in all of human history is himself sacrificing himself for the sake of unworthy vessels, not controlling everyone so as to sacrifice most of them that he's actually controlling. Again, it flies in the face of what we, I think, intuitively see through the revelation of Christ. So how does he objectively define the love of God? Well, just look at the cross, right? It's Christocentric. And that sounds so good, right? Don't, don't we all believe that Jesus is the full revelation of God, that the cross is the love of God displayed? This is the same argument that liberals use to deny orthodoxy. Just looking at the crucifixion, apart from the biblical narratives that explain it, interpret it, and give it to us, you can make that be anything you want to. It's very easy to just appeal to the cross or appeal to the love of God and then say anything you want. Say, see, I see that in the cross, therefore it proves it. 
we don't just look at the crucifixion. We don't just open up our Bibles to just the red letter portions and then narrow it down to just the passion and determine all we need to know about God from that. But one particular theological liberal that I listen to is a man named Brian Zond. And Brian Zond loves to appeal to the cross to refute things that even Leighton believes. Saying, you don't see that in the cross. You might see that in Paul. You might see that in Peter, but you don't see that in the crucifixion. That's not the heart of God. Anyone can take the cross and and project their personal opinions onto it. So, a Christocentric theodicy, a Christocentric definition of love, is one that takes all of the Word of God into account. Not just the red letters, not just the passion. The last, well, not the last thing, um... The second to last thing that we want to talk about before I conclude with what I think is the most important point is Leighton Flower's philosophy. As he criticized Calvinism, he um, regularly tried to, because he didn't want to do the U2 fallacy, defend his own position. And I would argue that as he explained provisionalist philosophy let me just say, at least to me, it made absolutely no sense. It made it made no sense to me at all. Because we do believe there's a huge difference between God permitting evil to go unfettered. Un- in other words, to, to allow for a world that's fallen to continue in its fallenness and to have the full weight and consequences of all of the sin that's in this world without him constantly stepping in and stopping this and causing brain aneurysms or causing people to drop dead or all these kinds of things that he's going to bring up later. We, we believe that God is permitting evil creatures to act freely for a purpose. That does not mean, therefore, God is, quote unquote, causally decreeing all the evil that takes place each for a purpose. And that's where we're pushing back. That's a different theodicy. It's a different worldview. In the same way, there's a good reason for God permitting evil to happen in this world unfettered for giving this world over to principalities and rulers in this dark world. There's a good reason for God doing that. And that's our theodicy. So what did he just say in in, in that segment? He's very clearly affirming God does permit things. He permits things for a reason. He permits things. He lets things happen. And why does he permit these things? Why does he permit? He has a good reason for them. That's their theodicy, right? It's different from Calvinism. He doesn't cause a degree. No, but he permits things. He permits them and he permits them for a good reason. But here's the problem. He immediately goes on to, admit, to claim that I'm misrepresenting them when I claim God foresees and permits things. He admits that that's determinism. So he's admitting Arminians are determinists. And he says, I'm not an Arminian. I'm a provisionalist. We don't agree that God even permits things. But he just said God does permit things. You just heard it, right? God permits things and he permits evil things, bad things. He permits them for a good purpose, but he does permit them. But then what does he go on to say? But I'm not going to therefore conclude that God's going around going, yeah, I'm going to permit this rape, but not this rape. And I'm going to do this. And I'm no, I think he's given the world over to man and he has let the full weight of the sin in this world come to fruition for his purpose and his plan that he will redeem all things, he will make all things right. He will bring... So he doesn't permit, apparently, right? He just got done saying, yeah, God does permit things. He does permit them. He lets them happen for a good purpose. And then he immediately turns around and says, you're misrepresenting me. I don't believe that God just permits this and then permits that and permits this and permits that. So does God permit or not? Because we've heard two different, two contradictory answers in this video so far. 
That's because he realizes we're going to get to this. Permission is ultimately a form of determinism, so he has to deny permission, but he also realizes you can't. If if God isn't decreeing, he is permitting. But so, so does God permit things or not? We don't know what Leighton believes. He said two different things. God has given us over to our own devices. We are like the prodigal out in the field on our own, doing our own things. Um, and we're waiting for redemption. We're looking forward to redemption. We don't believe God is meticulously micromanaging everything that happens here on earth like the Calvinist system claims. Okay, so you have to step into our worldview if you're actually going to critique it because we don't believe God's going, yeah, I think I'll permit that, but I'm not going to permit that. Yeah, I'll give that guy a brain aneurysm, but not that guy. Um, yeah, I'll stop. We just don't believe that's the way God's working. Okay, now, so we're not, we're not, we're not thinking from the same worldview. And, and this is one of the things that I think Calvinists automatically just assume that our worldview is basically the same as their worldview, but just a little slight change. And we're trying to help them to kind of drop the determinism worldview, step out of it for a second, long enough to understand where we're coming from. Try to understand our theodicy a little bit better. Well, we could if it wasn't so contradictory because and problematic, right? Because first and foremost, here's how you want me to understand your your theodicy. He permits things for good reasons, but he doesn't permit anything because to permit some things and not permit other things is just another form of determinism. So he doesn't permit things. He doesn't micromanage. He doesn't say, I'm going to permit this. I'm not going to permit that. He doesn't permit things, but he does permit things for a good purpose. It's contradictory. It's contradictory. That's why we don't understand. It doesn't make sense. It's contradictory. But notice, not only is it contradictory, let's just, what is he actually saying here? Let's go with the no permission latent, right? Let's not go with the Arminian, he does permit things for good purpose latent. Let's go with the no permission latent. The no permission latent, what is he saying? God doesn't micromanage. He doesn't say, I'm going to permit this. I'm not going to permit that. So what is he actually giving us here, folks? Deism. That's deism. What is deism? Deism is a God who just sort of lets the dreidel spin. He created, he started, and then he just backs off. That's deism. He just gave us divine deism, where God just, what he said, I, he doesn't permit, he doesn't give that guy a brain injury, but not that guy. God is, God's not, he just presented, presented God as if he's just a total observer. He just, he gave the world over to principalities, he gave the world over to men, he gave it over to our sinful, and he's just going to let us go until the second coming. Leighton has given us his philosophy is deism. God is a passive observer who interacts in no way. He doesn't cause. He doesn't even permit. He just gives it over, but we're waiting for redemption. One day he'll come again. So how does he make sense of Pharaoh being hardened? Because it sounds like God's interacting there. When he says, when, when he says, for example, God doesn't say, I'm going to permit this, I'm going to permit that. He doesn't give this guy a brain aneurysm. He does give. So when people get brain aneurysms, how can you possibly say God didn't permit that? Are you saying God can't stop that from happening? If you're saying God can't stop that from happening, I, I want to know what you believe about the power of God. If you're saying he can stop it and he knows it's happening, then what are you left with? Permission. He, he has to permit it at that point. Uh, here's a question for Dr. Flowers. Does he pray for people to get healed? If someone gets cancer, does, does Dr. Flowers pray, God, please heal this person? Why would he do that? Because from his own worldview, God's not giving people cancer or permitting cancer. He doesn't step in and say, I'm going to not let you get cancer. I'm going to take away your cancer. He's Again, God's got his hands in the air. He's kicked back. He's just watching. 
So when people get healed, God didn't do that, right? That's not God because he doesn't micromanage things. God didn't permit it. He doesn't, he's just, he's just giving the world over. So why would we ever give glory to God for healing? God didn't do that. He's not micromanaging. Again, he has turned God into a deist. He's turned his worldview into a deist worldview. God is just a passive observer. But I would argue, given his premises of omniscience, and given the fact that he knows God does interact with human history, he interacts in time, he has to admit what he said at the beginning of the video, which is that God does in fact permit things. God does in fact say, I'm going to permit this. I'm not going to permit this. I'll permit this and then take that away. I'll per- I won't permit this. He has to admit that. But because he sees what we're going to see in a minute, that that is ultimately an example of divine determinism. He has to retreat from it. But when he retreats from it, he retreats into deism. So to get out of deism, he retreats back into permission. And then when he realizes that's determinism, he retreats back into deism. He can't make up his mind. Is he a deist or is he a semi-determinist? But those are what he's given us. He's given us contradictory, illogical understandings of God's sovereignty. And again, this is why. Listen to this. He said, now here's what God doesn't do according to Calvinists, and this is true. He doesn't foresee these events and then permit them. That's more of the Arminian kind of traditionalist interpretation of God's decree and sovereignty and foreknowledge. But but let's go with that for a minute. So Okay. That's not really our perspective. It's it's the caricature of our perspective, like God's looking through the quarters of time, God's getting into DeLorean to drive ahead to see what's going to happen, and then he allows that to happen. Or that God's going around going, Yeah, I'll permit that. I won't permit this. I'm gonna stop this one. Yeah, I'm gonna do that. that's not the way we believe that God's at work in the world. Um, that I don't know how else to say that, but that is just a, that's just another semi form of determinism. It's, it's kind of like, I'm going to let this happen, but not this. I'm going to cause this to happen, but not this. Uh, that's not the way we believe that God has created the world. The God has created the world with free agents that do things freely. The issue is, and- the issue is not about God not stepping in to stop things from happening. It's a difference of the worldview because that's just another form, a minor, more minor form of determinism. It's a, it's a, it's a more, uh, it's a higher providential view of God being meticulously controlling on what's happening here. Like, yeah, I'm going to allow this and not this. I'm going to allow this, not this. I'm going to allow this, not this. We, again, that's not the way we believe God's working in this universe that we don't believe that's the way God has set it up. So to speak, that's not the way we believe his plan and purposes are coming to fruition. This is some refreshing admissions we're hearing here. Calvinists have constantly been, he thinks it's the U2 fallacy, it's not, but Calvinists are constantly trying to get Arminians to see that they essentially believe in determinism. You could call it a soft determinism or a passive determinism or what Dr. Flowers calls it, which is a minor determinism, but Arminians are determinists and he just admitted it. He just told us the classical Arminian understanding of God's providence and omniscience and how it interacts with free will is a, a soft form of Calvinism. That's what he just admitted. So I want anyone who watched his response and yeah, you get him, you get him late. If you're an Arminian, he's talking about you too. He's criticizing you. You are a danger to your local church. Why? Because Calvinists are apparently dangerous because of their view of determinism. And he just admitted Arminians are determinists too. You're part of the problem along with me. It's just God just, yeah, just giving us over, letting free creatures do things. He's not going to permit. He's not going to step in, but though he does permit and he does step in. 
that's what you're left with. And that's what you got to believe. And if you don't, apparently you're a problem to your local church. That sounds like that might be a problem to my local church. If, 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 if someone came through my door and said, pastor, I'm having an issue. What do we do with God's sovereignty and man's free will? And I said, he permits things for good reasons. This is our theodicy. He has a good reason for permitting things. But remember, he doesn't permit things. That's determinism. He doesn't say, I'm going to permit this. I'm going to do this. He just gives us over and he just lets us over. Now he does intervene and he does change things and heal people and stop things, but he's not meticulous. He's, this is a contradictory mess, but this is where I especially think that all of the problems I'm just mentioning here are highlighted. And he is able to bring about his purposes and his plans because he knows what free agents will do given his abilities to know future free choices of creatures. He but- is able to bring about good things because he knows what his free creatures will do? Guys, that doesn't make sense. That is a non sequitur. It's, 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 it's almost a tautology. Knowing what creatures will do does not directly lead to, therefore, he will bring good things about. Knowing the end of the movie does not in any way determine that I can change the end of a movie or that I'm bringing about the end of the movie. It just means I know the ending. How does God, that's what he said, God brings these good things about because he knows what free creatures will do. But those two things are not related. He is able to bring about his purposes and his plans because he knows what free agents will do. How do those things connect? How do they correlate? Th- those are two different categories. I know what free agents will do. Therefore, I'm able to bring about my purposes and plans. How? At some point in time, merely knowing what they will do does not bring about God's purposes and plans right? Just knowing what they will do and just watching them do it in no way brings about God's purposes and plans, especially if we agree they're sinners. If we just let sinners do what sinners do, it's going to not bring about God's purpose and plans. God can't just merely know what they're going to do. He has to, at some point in time, interact. He has to uh, step in and make things happen and and, and affect people and quote-unquote micromanage, quote-unquote cause, quote-unquote do all these things that he is so adamant God doesn't do. How does saying God knows what free creatures will do prove that God brings about his good purposes? It doesn't. God has to bring about good purposes. He has to actively interact and accomplish something to bring about good purposes. Merely knowing what people will do doesn't mean that God can bring about good purposes. That's a non sequitur. Those things don't connect like that. So again, this sounds extremely confusing to me. He wants us to step in their worldview and understand the provisionist worldview, but it needs to make more sense than this. And that's why I'll admit, I, I kind of re- resented what, what he said at the end of this clip. Okay, so I'm not going to bring in philosophical speculations and place them over the top of my text and say, I'm going to read through these lenses of theistic determinism or whatever philosophical lens I'm going to place over the top of the text and say, therefore, the Bible must mean this when it says this. I'm just not going to go there. If the Bible says uh, to the people who are b- burning their children to Malek, I did not command this, nor did I cr- decree it, nor did it enter in my mind. I'm not going to then walk away and go, well, my systematic says actually he sovereignly and unchangeably decreed for them to burn their children to Malek. And that verse just must not have it quite right. I'm sorry. Your, my authority is not Calvin. My authority is not your philosophical worldview. My- so that's why I thought this was kind of a silly comment. Like, do Calvinists really, is that what we're saying? This verse must not have gotten it right. No, that's not what we're saying. And I can prove that because 
this kind of very simplistic approach that he's claiming to take to the Bible, he doesn't actually take to the Bible. First and foremost, he gave the example of when God looked at the the sacrificing of children to Molech, and God says in the Old Testament, this never entered my mind. And he says, so I'm just going to take that at face value. I'm not going to let Calvin's philosophical worldview interpret that for me. But guess who truly takes that at face value? The open theists. Because if you take that at face value, it did not enter his mind. That means God didn't even know about it. Because in order for him to have foreseen it and been omniscient, he would have had to know about it. And that's why the open theists say he didn't even see it coming. So apparently you do have a philosophy that reads into that verse a metaphorical reading, an anthropomorphic reading. So apparently you do have a philosophy, and I'm willing to bet that philosophy comes from the analogy of faith, from other scriptures, not from Calvin or some provisionalist theologian. So Calvinists merely do what you do. We have to let all of scripture speak, right? So for example, I'm curious, does, does Dr. Flowers take that kind of a simplistic reading of the text when it comes to... Um, Amos 3.6, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Some translations will say even things like caused it. Does God cause disaster? Remember, disaster is oftentimes people making choices. Does God cause people to make disaster in a city? Does God micromanage like that? No, Leighton already told us, no, he doesn't permit anything. He doesn't let things, he just gives us over. He didn't cause this. He didn't decree it. Well, listen, I'm, I'm not going to let you be my, my interpreter of scripture. I'm not going to submit to your philosophical worldview. Amos says God caused it. Amos says God causes disaster. So that's, that's what I'm going to believe. What about Job chapter two, verse 10, when Job tells his wife that she speaks of a foolish as a foolish woman, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Does Leighton believe that God gives evil things to us? Does he believe that God does evil things to us? He gives us evil things that in some way the evil we receive ultimately came from God? That doesn't fit with what he told us about God not micromanaging and God just gives us over, God doesn't intervene, he doesn't permit this and not permit that. No, he's the deist, right? God's just passive. But apparently Job doesn't think that. Apparently, Job doesn't think that. And by the way, you can't say Job was wrong because the text tells us in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So what does he do with that verse? Does he just read it plain, right? But here's here's probably one of my favorite ones. If, if, if it's just so simple as saying, yeah, the text says it never entered his mind, so I'm not going to say he decreed it, okay? What does he do with Isaiah 63, verse 17? Oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? What does he do with that? If he reads that text the same way he demands we read the text about sacrificing children to Molech, what do we have to take away from this text? That God does cause us. He deterministically causes us to sin. We wander from God's ways, at least at least maybe not all the time, but there's at least some people that God actually causes them to sin. He causes them to wander from, from his ways. He causes them not to fear God. Does Leighton believe that? Or does he have a philosophy that he imposes on the text that tells him to understand this in a way where God is not the one making them wander? God is not the one making them not fear. So that's just kind of a silly game to say, well, Calvinists look at the text and say, well, the text got it wrong. We don't. No, all of us are trying to glue all of the pieces of the text together. Last thing I'll say is this. I think this is the most important point that I'm going to make in the whole thing. 
This is what I truly believe is the most important point. This is the part of the clip, the clip. This is the part of the video that I found the most offensive, the most illogical and the, the most worthy of rebuke. Today, we're going to be going over a broadcast that was critiquing my interview several years ago with Dr., uh, with Andy Stanley, Pastor Andy Stanley from Georgia, uh, who many of you know has supported our broadcast, has uh, been on the broadcast before, possibly will come on again one day. We will, uh, we're trying to work uh, through some of the scheduling on something like that. We'd love to have him back again, talk through some of these issues. That is astonishing to me. All right, let me be, let me be frank here. Dr. Flowers was incredibly gracious and kind to me, and I'm want to return that to honor the Lord and love him as a brother. If you ever find yourself in Roswell, New Mexico, if your car breaks down here, let's hang out. But I need to be a little direct here. The irony here is horrible. Let me get this straight. You want to have Andy Stanley back on your show. Andy Stanley is the last person in the world who has any credibility at all. When it comes to criticizing bad philosophies of local church ministry. It's one thing, Dr. Flowers, to bring smart theologians onto your show and criticize Calvinism. That's fine. You know, that's a good conversation. Iron sharpens iron. We'll refute each other. We'll go back and forth. I think it is so rich and so ironic that someone like Andy Stanley got to be on your show to talk about how Calvinists are hurting the local church. I, I'm not sure if any Christian in America has done more to hurt the local church than Andy Stanley. This goes way beyond the Calvinism, non-Calvinism debate. Andy Stanley has no credibility to discuss who's harming local church ministry. If you have Andy Stanley on, you know what you need to discuss? You need to discuss his book, his newest book. Did you read it? I read it. I read every word of it. I read the the small, tiny book he published before the big book came out, and I listened to all of his sermon series related to his book, all of those controversial takes about the Old Testament. Have you listened to those? I've listened to all the sermon series. I've read all of the books. Have you done that? You need to. If you're going to have him back on, you need to. You need to read Irresistible. I've read it. It's atrocious. It is blasphemous. His view of scripture is terrible. And if you agree with that book, tell your listening audience, I affirm Andy Stanley's view of scripture. Tell me that Andy Stanley's view of scripture is good for the local church. Tell me you think Andy Stanley's view of the Old Testament, that it doesn't apply to Christians, that it doesn't apply to Gentiles, that it, even if it is totally filled with errors and fallibility and it's all messed up. It doesn't matter in terms of the Christian faith. You tell your fans you believe that. You tell your fans that there's that's not going to affect the local church in any negative way. By the, aren't you the director of apologetics at your seminary? Read his, he has a whole section on the Bible and apologetics. Read that section and you tell me if you think that's good for the local church. At one point in his book, you realized he, he actually said the Bible is insufficient to tell a college person what fornication is and why it's sinful. You have to rely on arguments about his health and how it's not good for his health and how it hurts marriages. The Bible can't do that. Do you believe that? And not just if you, if you don't believe it, how harmful is that to the local church? Andy Stanley closed his church down for an entire year. He closed his church down, well, for not an entire, for, for nine months. Is that harmful to local church ministry? Just closing down your church for nine months? 
Andy Stanley has been promoting this mega church, satellite campus, sing secular music, shallow Christianity for years. He has wrecked local church ministry, and you want to bring him on to talk about how Calvinists are harmoning the local church? That astonishes me. That astonishes me. You want to know, again, I'm not trying to be harsh. Why don't you, why don't you ask Andy Stanley about, by the way, uh, back in 2012, something he's never repented of, at least to my knowledge. If he has someone posted in the comments, he preached a sermon. He took the clip down, but that's not repentance. That's hiding. He preached a clip, and the clip can still be found on Vimeo. Openly promoting a same-sex marriage. He allowed someone engaged in a same-sex relationship to serve and volunteer in his church. And he celebrated when a man left his wife to date another man, and they started all going to church together, and he celebrated that. And he let that gay man serve in church. How does that harm local church ministry? That's the pastor you want to bring onto your show to talk about how Calvinism harms the local church? The audacity. Again, I'm, I'm not trying to be harsh. I, I hope this is still, this is coming off as a loving rebuke. He, Dr. Flowers was very kind to me. I want to be very kind in return, but this is a serious issue. I do not believe Andy Stanley has any capital, any credibility to be criticizing any other denomination or theological system and how it affects the local church. Andy Stanley has a grossly unbiblical view of the local church. You want to know, this is brother to brother. Let me just say, here's what I think is happening. I think that you are so anti-Calvinist right now that it's blinding you a little bit. Andy Stanley is a serious problem. And this has nothing to do with Calvinism. I'm not saying this because he's not a Calvinist. Andy Stanley is a serious problem to local church ministry, to the philosophy of local church, to a philosophy of scripture. It's a serious problem. If you have Andy Stanley on, I would challenge you, don't bring him on to bash Calvinism. Challenge him. Ask him about his book. Ask him about closing his church down. Ask him about promoting a same-sex relationship. Challenge him. You hold his feet to the fire and see if what he believes and the things he practices are good for the local church. Are satellite campuses good for the local church? Are singing secular music good for the local church? Are gay marriages good for the local church? Are unhitching from the Old Testament, is that good for the local church? Is that good for apologetics? Dr. Flowers, I would, I would challenge you, if you hear this, if you listen to this, I think that's what needs to be discussed. But for those of you who stuck through to the end of this long video, I, you are so appreciated. Thank you. I hope it was edifying. I hope it was helpful. Thank you again to Dr. Flowers for his love, his graciousness, and for taking the time. Uh, it really blessed me. Who knows? Maybe I'll be hearing him again. I don't know. But regardless, thank you for listening. As always, maintain the gospel. Maintain the fight. God bless.